truly we worship an amazing God, and He is truly great. And so, as Brother Dan has sung that song for us, I know that his desire is to lead us in worshiping God and exalting God. And we're very thankful for that. Today, we will be turning to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, and examining the first four seals that are loosed by the Lamb. These seals, as they're loosed, set loose, unleash, send forth what is commonly called the four riders of the apocalypse. So, let us read Revelation 6, beginning with verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Remember the setting. Chapter 4, the glorious throne room. The creatures standing around the throne, proclaiming, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The scroll in the right hand of he who sat on the throne. John, weeping, because No one is found worthy in all of the creation to loose the seals on that scroll. And why is John weeping? It's not an idle curiosity, but it's the recognition that this very scroll contains the decrees and sovereign purposes of God who sits on the throne. If no one is worthy to loose these seals and open this scroll, then the the sovereign decrees of God will not be carried out upon the earth. So this scroll, like the will of Vespasian, the empire which was probated upon the breaking of the seals, contains the will and the purposes of God. But then, glory be... John is told, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And then John looks, but he sees a lamb. The sacrificial lamb. Symbolism representing Christ and his sacrificial work. But this lamb is not only the sacrificial lamb, but this is the ruling lamb because he has the crowns upon his head. And he ascends to the midst of the throne and takes 
that scroll from he who sits on the throne. And what is taking place here is that Christ is worthy to carry out the decrees of God. He is worthy. He is worthy because he was slain and because he has been exalted. And they sang a new song, you were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then this song, united heavenly voices, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And then the Lamb begins to un. Loose the seals. And what happens? What happens? As we look to chapter 6, we see in chapter 6, six seals. And we're going to focus on the first four today because they go together well as a group. These four horsemen going forth to all of the earth. And then we'll examine the cry of the martyrs, the fifth seal, and the sixth seal, cosmic disturbances. Now, in Revelation, you have these seven seals on this scroll, seven being a number of completion, a perfect number. So the will of God being carried out. You have six of these seals described as they're broken, as they're loosed, and what decrees are going forth, what issues are being proclaimed. And then with the seventh seal, when it is unloosed, you find that it begins then the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is almost like it contains within it the seven trumpets. So I've used this illustration before in several different ways, Revelation, those the idea of those little nesting dolls, you know, where you open up one and there's another one inside and another one inside that. Revelation is, is written in layers. And again, time-wise, looking at these different layers, I don't think that this is all progressing chronologically from chapter 6 to chapter 7 to chapter 8 to chapter 9 to chapter 10 to chapter 11, chapter 12. You know, I've presented that entire message, these parallel segments. And so these different seals and then trumpets and then bowls, I think, can correspond with one another even at the same period of time in history or perhaps a different time in history. The fact of the matter is, if we, as we look at the book of Revelation, it's just a little bit too messy in its chronology, uh, chronology to say that it just all, one after the other, just all flows. It, Revelation doesn't do that so much. It's like so many other books that contain prophecies and whatnot. You go and read the prophets, and the, and the prophet will jump forward and see something long-term in the future, and then the vision will jump back, and it'll be something closer to the contemporary time. And so we don't want to look at it as uh, in kind of our Western way of thinking of, you know, all perfectly ordered all the ducks in a row. There are many things that flow together and and happen at the same time and some things happen at different times. Another point with the book of Revelation is we we don't want to press the metaphors too far. You know, we have this imagery and there's an old saying, you know, making the metaphors walk on all four. We we don't want to press the metaphors too far. Okay? Um, We've, we've looked at that a little bit and given examples of that. What we want to do as we take these various segments of Scripture is to remember this is a, a picture book, not a puzzle book so much. Let's step back and let's try and get the big picture details that we can all agree on, and then we'll work our way down to discussing some of the specifics. And even as 
people within the Christian camp disagree on some of the specifics, you realize, and this is the case with a fair number of debates within the Christian camp on specific texts of Scripture, is that it's not always that one interpretation is presenting something that is inaccurate biblically, and another interpretation is presenting something that is accurate biblically. It's just a question of what does this particular text mean? So, does the first writer here represent Christ, or does it represent general conquests by governments and nations? Well, in the reality, Christ goes forth to conquer and to conquer with the gospel and so that governments go forth and they conquer and suppress their people. Both are accurate. And I'm going to examine, for instance, this first writer from the two different sides and present that this, this morning. But uh, one thing that, that is encouraging, we do have substantive debates in the Christian church, but sometimes we're simply asking, what does this particular text mean? And in Revelation, much of the debate can come down to, in, in many instances, what is this text referring to? Okay. Now, as, as we know, and I've covered over the past several weeks, there are some pretty substantial differences in regarding to the, the timeline, in regarding to how do we approach the book, the different views of the millennium. But now, let's look at the big picture. What do you see? You listened as I read the beginning of chapter 6, what are some things that you see that give us the big picture, things that we can clearly say that this is teaching? One is this, from the very beginning, notice each one of these seals, there is a very clear statement as to whom is bringing this about. Who is Loosing the seals. It's the Lamb. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Verse 3, when He opened the second seal. Verse 5, when He opened the third seal. Verse 7, when He opened the fourth seal. All of these things that are being unleashed upon the earth as described as, as horsemen are coming as a direct result of Christ, the Lamb, carrying out the divine purposes of God upon the earth. Not as a result of random chance. Not as a result merely of human depravity and sin. But God sovereignly carrying out his purposes on the earth. If we miss that, we've, we've missed the biggest declaration in all of this. God is sovereign. God is in control. When conflicts come in this world, when there is economic scarcity on the earth, when there is death, it is not outside of the sovereign control of God Almighty. And notice here as well, as we look at the big picture, there are multiple statements here that show that those who are pictured as going forth on these horses and unleashing these, these terrible things upon the earth are being described as given divine authority to do so. Verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse he who sat on it had a bow, and notice this, a crown was given to him. Was given. By whom? By God. What we have here is the divine passive voice in the scriptures. Grammar is... Helpful, there's passive and active verbs. The passive voice here 
was given to him does not specifically state the subject of the giving. Who was giving? We have to look at the context to understand. But when this divine passive voice is used, it's implied that God is the one doing it. And you see this throughout the Bible. Was granted to. Was given. And it's implied it was by God himself. Notice in verse 4, another horse fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Was granted by whom? By God. Notice here in verse 8, so I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword. Power given by whom? By God. Big picture, the Lamb is accomplishing the divine purposes of God, and heaven itself, God himself, is granting to these who go forth the power of the authority to carry out these devastations upon the earth. We have, to, we have to acknowledge this from God's word. You will not be able to understand the scriptures. And John Piper has said this, and I quote, he says... If you do not have a category in your thinking for God decreeing evil to bring about his good purposes, you will not understand the word of God. You simply won't. Now, I wrestle with this just like we all wrestle with this because the scriptures say clearly God is not the author of sin. But the scriptures clearly teach that God not only permits wickedness to take place, but that it is part of his sovereign decree that it takes place. And that he is up to something good in the midst of it. And the the most resounding example of this is the cross of Christ. It was prophesied by God. Over a thousand and hundreds of years in advance, in express detail, what would take place upon that cross. And yet, was it not the most wicked action that human beings have ever perpetrated on the globe? But yet, it is clear God decreed it. And it is clear God intended for the greatest good that has ever come in the created universe to take place through the most wicked action that was ever perpetrated. We must have a place in our thinking for a sovereign God who brings about his sovereign will in this world, including evil actions by human beings who are never forced to do this against their will. The... Solid confessions of the faith talk about the contingency of second causes. It is never the case that God forces anyone against their will to do evil. There's a very real sense in which God, removing his hand of restraint, simply allows people to fall in the direction which they are already leaning, which is straight down. But... The scriptures clearly teach that there is a way in which God, as people are falling into sin, guides in a direction so that his exact will is accomplished in this world. You think about the statement that Joseph made to his brothers, knowing the sovereign will of God. He said, what you did to me and attempting to murder me and 
All of these details, he said, you intended it for evil. You meant it for evil. You designed it to bring about evil, but God meant it. And it's the same Hebrew word. God designed it, crafted it for good. John Piper also said this in thinking about evil taking place in the world and making sure that our thinking is correct on this. God is always one step ahead of the devil. God does things not in the way that we would expect them to be done. Most of the time, God's going to do things very differently than we expect. And he's always one step ahead of the devil. But as as we consider these things, at the very least, in the big picture, recognize the lamb looses the seals. Heaven gives this authority. God gives this authority for these things to take place. And recognize as well. Well, I'm going to pause right there and we'll make more application as we go along. Let's examine these four horsemen. We see different colors representing them, do we not? We don't want to always press colors too far in in the scriptures. But we see here, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So conquering and conquest is a result of this first seal being opened and it's represented by a a rider on a white horse. The next seal represents conflict on the earth and in particular it appears social conflict because peace is taken from the earth and people are killing one another. So we have general conquest in the first seal. We have social conflict in the second seal, and it's represented by a fiery red horse. Then we have the third seal, represented by a black horse, and we have economic hardship and scarcity being described here. When it says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And then the fourth The pale horse is the color of a corpse. And this represents general death brought about by whatever causes. The sword, starvation, beasts of the earth. So general war and conquest, social conflict, economic scarcity, and widespread death. So that... A fourth of the population is described as being destroyed. Now, stepping back and looking at the big picture again here, we we see, don't we, the lamb loosing the seals, God giving authority for these things to take place, and these ain't pleasant. Everything that's being described here is gruesome and horrific. With widespread death. At the very least in the big picture. I think we should understand here. That these things are representing the judgment of God. Upon wicked people. Is God just? In what he accomplishes? Is all death in this life a result generally. Of the sinfulness of humankind? Every death that occurs ultimately is a result of the fall and of sin. And in some way is a judgment of God. So, big picture. God is righteously sending forth judgment on the entire earth. There's a precedent in scripture for horses, and even different colored horses. If you look over to Zechariah, 
So this is in the Old Testament. And it's the next to last book in the Old Testament. So we have Zechariah, and then we have Malachi. If you look to Zechariah chapter 1, And let's start with verse 8. Zechariah 1 and verse 8. I saw by night and behold a man riding on a red horse and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him were horses red, sorrel and white. And I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Now notice this, an angel this is a, an example of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. This is a vision. And the angels in apocalyptic literature are the interpreters for the seer. So the angel is going to explain. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So, you know, we see as we compare this to Revelation that we need not think that there's a direct correspondent in the colors of the various horses. So we don't want to press the colors too far in in Revelation. And we see here that, of course, context being key, that... These horses represent God sending out and basically viewing, inquiring of the entire earth. And the state of the earth is that people were resting quietly here in this context. With the horses in Revelation, they're being sent out over all the earth. So there is a similarity there, is there not? Um, Look to Zechariah chapter 6. Here we have vision of four chariots. Beginning with verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second black, with the third white, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? See again, a vision, apocalyptic in nature, angel interpreting. And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The, the one with the black is going to the north. The one uh, the white are going after them. The dappled are going toward the south country. The strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. But again, see the imagery here of these horses, again, going throughout the whole earth. I think that's one similarity in Revelation. These horses, as they go forth, it represents going through the entire earth. And we see, back in Revelation, the fourth seal, and it says, So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed after him. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword. So as, as I look at these, and of course this ties in with how one views the whole book and the structure of the book, I believe that these are talking about general hardships brought about ultimately as a result of the judgment of God upon the entire earth, and that these are not reserved to one tiny slot on the timeline of history, but that these have occurred throughout human history. So these are general judgments, not specific. Now, one other thing to consider in the book of Revelation, it mentions a fourth of the earth being killed here with the fourth seal. When you go to the trumpets, there's an escalation, and it mentions a third of the earth destroyed. And then when you have the the bowls of God's wrath, there it pictures God's wrath being poured out fully upon the earth. So there is, in this picturing, an an advancement of the degree and scope 
of these judgments. So again, big pictures, the lamb loosing the seals, God giving authority for these things, these things being broad and widespread judgments of God going out upon the entire earth. And these four judgments, war and conquest, social conflict, economic hardship and scarcity, and widespread general death. Now, let's consider this first seal for a moment. Some have interpreted this as referring to Christ, and then others refer to it as not speaking of Christ in particular, but speaking more of this general conquest. Those who say this is Christ say that this is Christ riding forth with the proclamation and through the proclamation of the gospel and the gospel advancing throughout God's kingdom. Now, it's interesting as I've thought through this, some of you may remember if you were in our men's study, when I taught on this, I was leaning more towards the direction of this representing Christ. Now I'm leaning a little bit more in the other direction. Uh, so I'm going to present both sides. Both are accurate. It's just a matter of what's this text teaching, okay? So some such as William Hendrickson will say, this is clearly referring to Christ. Notice the color white and, and Christ is pictured in Revelation as clothed in white. Notice a crown is on his head, and this crown represents rule and authority, and Christ is described as being crowned. He will point to Revelation 19 and say, oh, here we have a parallel passage in Revelation 19. It speaks about him who has on this robe and on his thigh written this name and, and goes forth in conquest. And so... He will make a very strong case with multiple points that this refers to Christ and it refers to the gospel being basically carried out throughout the world by Christ. And then what he will say, and most who hold that this is Christ, will say these following hardships are the hardships that come upon the people of God as a result of their proclaiming the gospel. So this view would also interpret these other seals a little bit differently, you see, as to be referring to persecution that happens to believers, most specifically. Now, on the other hand, there are those like D.A. Carson, who says that the immediate context here rules out this being Christ himself. And, and he points to several things in evidence. He says... Notice that it's the lamb opening the seals, but it says here that the one who sat on the white horse had a crown given to him. And he'll say in Revelation, you don't see the terminology so much of something being given to Christ like that. At this point, Christ has ascended to the throne and he is loosing the seals. He is the one that is bringing about things, not the one who is receiving authority or things, okay? So that's one evidence he gives. Another is, Carson will say, very clearly, these four horses are to be seen as, as a unit, literarily here. These four go together. And he says, very clearly, the other three here are talking about widespread persecution, hardship, um, destruction upon the earth. So he says, why would we take the first one to refer to the gospel going forth and not to hardship as a result of general conquest and war. And he has some good points in that. So, simply going to put it this way. We know that Jesus Christ as a result of his work, told his disciples, take the gospel to the entire world. And the gospel was taken to the entire known world before the New Testament was completed. Because <laughs> the Apostle Paul said in Colossians that it's been preached, it's gone forth to the entire world. Okay? And as the gospel went forth, it went forth in triumph. <laughs> 
You know, you think about this for just a minute. How many nations were there on the face of the earth at the time that Christ came that had a sound, deep, godly contingent and influence? None. (laughs) Not even the Jewish nation. Because her own rulers were corrupted and rejected their Messiah. But as a result of the advancement of the gospel of Christ, how many nations resultingly had light brought to them? Many, many. So the gospel has gone forth and has gone forth with great power. This is true. But is this what this text is talking about? Like I said, I'm I'm leaning in the other direction because of the context here and those points that I mentioned previously. In Revelation 19, the picture is more of Christ at the end going forth and ultimately triumphing in conquest over his enemies. And so those who say that this is speaking about Christ and the gospel going forth, that's a different that's a different uh, advancement than in 19. So it wouldn't necessarily be a parallel then, you see, with chapter 19 for one point. But again, both things accurate theologically, just what is this text speaking about? Is it the case that God has given power to nations to go forth and to wage war on other nations as a result of his judgment upon the earth. Absolutely the case. Read Isaiah, and he speaks of Babylon as a tool in his hands to judge his own people, the nation of Israel. In the scriptures, God is described as one who brings about these things. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And Moses is speaking here in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel. And he is proclaiming the word of the Lord to them. And he says in verse 39, this is the word of God. This is God speaking here through Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I whet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. That's God speaking. And this isn't just God in the Old Testament with his angry eyes on. God says to us under the new covenant that if those who were judged under the old covenant were judged as a result of their sin, how much more so will judgment come upon those who trample underfoot the blood of Christ? And reject the new covenant promises. And besides God in his character and his nature has not changed as a God of justice. Will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says Christ will come in flaming fire. This in the final judgment. In Revelation, it's not referring to final judgment yet in these statements that we were looking at, but it says Christ will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon the enemies of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 
And let's begin with verse 9. Remember the former things of old. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now notice something specifically that he mentions as being decreed by him. Something he has declared, the end from the beginning. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. I will place salvation in Zion. He talks about a ravenous bird of prey from the east. And the man who executes my counsel from a far country, he's talking about using heathen nations in judgment. And it says he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done. He is sovereign. And he is sovereign over war and over conquest. Back to Revelation then. And the second seal, the second rider. So Revelation 6 and verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Notice the terminology granted to take peace from the earth. I think think this implies here that God and the scriptures speak of God as restraining. Restraining evil. So any peace that is on the earth as a result of God restraining evil. Evil. It's not as a result of evil people being good. The reality is, if God does not restrain evil, we self destruct. There was a time in history of which it was said in the scriptures that, ev- that everyone did that which was evil. Continuously. And as a result, God wiped out everyone save eight. Again, it's this reality that we, even as believers, we are sustained by the grace of God daily. You know, the word grace in Scripture can refer to. The gift of God to us in terms of salvation, but it also, in other contexts, means power. We have to have the grace of God, the power of God, even as believers, to ever do any good thing. And it's not that we're justified and then we carry on in our own strength from this point on, right? No! We are dependent on the grace of God every second of every Today, we need the power of God to do that which is right. I mean, do we ever do a good deed and then pat ourselves on the back and say, why, you good boy? No, we say like the Apostle Paul, I strove, I labored, but yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And the reality is, if God removes his hand of grace, we fall. We fall. God doesn't even have to press us downward. What happens if I hold this in my hand and I support it by my strength? What do I have to do to make this fall? Do I have to press it down? All I have to do is remove my hand and I fall. It falls. We stand by the grace of God. If God removes 
peace from the earth. And you know what? I praise God for the inconsistency of unbelievers. It's the grace of God that unbelievers are inconsistent with their own worldviews. If people did not borrow from a Christian worldview because of the common grace of God upon all of this earth, and they were consistent with their evolutionary materialism, for instance, then it would just be dog eat dog. It would be bite and devour and consume. And what has happened in history when peace was removed? Think of Rwanda. In 1994, with the Hutus and the Tutsis and this promotion of the superiority by the Hutus and they stir up the people to go out and begin to slay one another with machetes and by hand, literally people just going out and slaughtering. And an estimated 100,000 to 500,000 within just a couple months, people killing one another with the sword. God removes his hand of restraint. It's what people do. And we can't say, oh, well, no, no, no. I mean, we're, we're enlightened. We're enlightened. We're enlightened over here in the, in the West. And we're enlightened. We, we move beyond, we move beyond uh, religion. All wars come as a result of religion. All social conflicts as a result of religion. It's one of the stupidest statements that somebody will ever make. Have they, have they not looked at the communist regimes? Imagine all the people. You know, no religion. And that's going to fix everything. Yeah. Look at communist China. Millions who have been oppressed. And who have died. Russia. Look at these regimes where they systematically seek to remove God from the picture. And now they don't remove religion ultimately because everyone has a religion. And so they deify the state or they deify an emperor. But the reality is millions upon millions starve to death, forced to work so hard that they... You see the pictures of people that look like skeletons standing naked and trying to preserve their dignity with their hands, but they look like corpses on their feet, and they're, this is done. This is done. Millions and millions have died, people slaying one another in these regimes. And there's this, I, I know, I mean, even at this point, I, I wrestle with this. But I must proclaim, I must proclaim that if we do not see in such events the righteous judgment of God upon humanity, we are being unfaithful to God. We're being unfaithful to God. If, if we only ever look at events in human history where there is War and death and all of these things from a materialistic perspective. We never think about God and his righteous judgments. We are being unfaithful to God. The third seal, scarcity on the earth. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And there was the black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the wine, the oil and the wine. Economic scarcity on the earth. A denarius was a day's wages. 
for a working man. A cord of wheat was what would sustain one man. Economic scarcity, a man working all day and being able to buy the wheat, the more nourishing, only enough to feed himself. Or to get the less nourishing, the barley, and only be able to feed three people. What if the man has a wife and two children, three children, four children? He cannot even provide by his labor enough to support his family. And this has happened multiple times throughout history. All of these things have happened multiple times throughout history. War and conquest, people turning on one another. Even in the Roman Empire, before this was written, there were emperors. There's one period of time where there were four emperors within a a very short span of time, like within one year. And they're fighting one another and killing one another. There are times where there were great famines throughout history. And even into modern history, I mean, you know, here we sit and we're going to have a feast afterwards. But yet you think of places like Somalia and the starvation that has taken place over there, even in this century. There are people around this world literally starving to death. Again, one of the things that I want us to see as we look at this today is I want us I want us to see the bigger picture. We can so often define all of human existence in terms of our immediate existence in one time in one place in the United States of America. And we think, oh, well, things like this aren't really going on today. Nonsense. Oh, well, Christians aren't really being persecuted today like they were in the past. Nonsense. Oh, there aren't people suffering to a great degree around the world. You know, we've got, we've got all of our resources and everything. Nonsense. We've got to open our eyes. We've got to stop interpreting the Bible through the lens of 21st century United States of America. If we look at the principles of Scripture and they can only apply to us in our time, we've misinterpreted the Bible. This is what happens when there's hardship and famine. Is the, the price goes up. Cicero, in his writings, uh, during time of more increase, said that a man with a denarius could buy 12 quarts of wheat. So you see here inflation. You see here scarcity. But it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. What that's probably talking about is that many nations, when they went in and when they conquered another nation or in the midst of the warfare, they would destroy the natural resources. So this is God here being gracious. Do not destroy the oil and the wine. Where does oil come from? This isn't petroleum, folks. There. Oh, mercy. There have been people who have written entire books about how to find petroleum by using the Bible. When the references that they use, we're talking about olive oil, not petroleum. It's just like, give me a break. (laughs) People have used the Bible so often for that which it was not intended to be used. The oil, the olive trees from which the oil would come, the wine, the vineyards, the grapes, and the vines. God is saying, this is a lesser statement of judgment. Don't go in and destroy the natural resources completely. And then we have the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature, and it's represented by a pale horse, the color of a corpse, the color of death. 
And the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades. Now, as we go along, we'll do a more in-depth look at this term Hades, okay? But let's recognize this. In the Bible, there is basically one word referring to what we would call hell that is used throughout the Bible, and it refers sometimes to the grave, and sometimes it refers to the place of those who are damned as they are being punished but awaiting the greater punishment which is to come. And so this statement talking about widespread death, death and Hades, these terms are being used in many ways synonymously. Death and the grave followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. These four great judgments. Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 21 also mentions four judgments resulting in death. 14, 21. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. God mentions these as, notice this, his four great judgments, you see. Sword, hunger, death by the beasts of the earth mentioned in Revelation. Judgments of God. Judgments of God. So here these horsemen of the apocalypse go forth. A couple more points of application. Again, for us to look out and see wars and famine and death without thinking about God's justice is to be unfaithful and disobedient to God. Secondly, for us, seeing Death, seeing hardship, seeing depravity should lead us to repentance. If you have not yet repented of your sins today, fallen on your face before God, and have said, I am a sinner, and I need Christ, and I need salvation. When you hear of hardship in this world, or if death touches your family, it should drive you to repentance. It should remind you that this life is short. It's but a vapor. That we will all die physically unless Christ returns before then. We will die. And whether... We die physically in this life or not, which is most likely to happen, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Says this. Luke 13 and verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And when hardships and disasters strike this world, something that struck near to home to us when Louisiana was struck with the storm surge and the tsunami and people saw the hardship going on in New Orleans and they said, ah, there, see, that wicked bed of sin and God has brought judgment upon them. 
The message to us is, unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Yes, it is a general act of God's judgment. All of these things are because of our sin. But we are to repent or we will perish. We do not stand in haughty pride and say, oh, look at them. They got what they deserve. What do we deserve? But for God to pour out his fury upon us and to bring upon us the worst diseases and the most horrific and painful deaths imaginable. Every one of you sitting here deserves for God to bring upon you the most torturous death that you can imagine because of your sin. And God not doing that to you is purely an act of His grace and mercy. And if He calls us to die for Him like many of the reformers burning at the stake, we can yet do it for His glory and proclaim His fame because we will be vindicated in the end. But it's by His grace, not our merit. Seeing death and depravity should lead us to repentance. Thirdly, knowing that God merely has to remove his hand of restraint from us for us to commit atrocities should cause us to plead daily for grace. We need, to, we need God daily. We, we say it, right? There but for the grace of God go I. Do we believe it? Fourthly, recognizing God's judgment of the wicked should drive us to share the gospel. The scriptures say, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The scriptures say that not a, God is not slack concerning his promises as some men consider slackness, but he is patient and he is waiting in his final judgments because he desires for all of his elect to come to repentance. Why hasn't Christ come back yet? Because he wants many people to be saved. What should we do? Knowing that people are saved through the medium, the means of the proclamation of the gospel, how will they hear without a preacher? We go and preach. Fifthly, knowing that God will keep his people spiritually in the midst of calamities gives us hope. Because we might look at this and say, rightly and recognize God has not promised to spare us from these things. So I will despair. But the reality is, God will never leave or forsake his people. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who has risen and is even at the right hand of God. Unloosing the seals and bringing about judgments on this world. God will keep us. Don't believe the lie that God has promised you prosperity, peace, and comfort. He has not. You will not overcome if you believe that lie. I want you to overcome. I want to overcome. God give us grace. Recognizing that God is sovereign over all things should encourage us not to lose hearts as well. Now, I know we have dealt with weighty things today. But ultimately... We must look to God in his word and we must hold to truth and we must not live our lives based on our feelings. We ought to feel what God wants us to feel in response to the truth. 
But as we wrestle with thoughts of God's justice and of death and of his love and mercy, but yet his judgments, we must be controlled. We must live by truth. And we must trust God that in it all, he is up to something, as J. Adams says, and he is up to something good. Father, we thank you for your word today and for those things that we have seen in it. And I pray that you will bless your word to us and that you will draw us closer to you and strengthen us to overcome. And I pray this asking as well that you will Bless us as we partake of the blessing of the food you've provided for us and we will be the, ever more the thankful as we think about those many people who do not have this that we have. This is a gift from you, but if you take it from us someday, may we not curse you, but may we praise you all the more. For we have been given the bread of life as the children of you, our Father. We have been given Christ. And so we eat of that bread and we shall never be hungry. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.